Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Ladies and gentlemen, Randy here. Welcome back to the Trap Draw Podcast. I am riding solo today for my interview. Uh, busy week ahead for us. We are departing for Tourist Sauce. So handling this one on my own, Tron and I will be back sometime after Tourist Sauce to catch up. And uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot, a lot to talk about. Before I get into my guest and the conversation, though, I want to thank a couple of sponsors off the top. The first being Whoop. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach and official fitness wearable of the PGA and LPGA tours. Monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback with Whoop. Train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all-new Whoop 4.0, the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. The all-new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. The device also features a new smart alarm designed to wake you up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. This all-new waterproof device is free when you sign up for a Whoop 4.0 membership. And for any members, if you have six months left of membership on your account, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. Plus, right now, Whoop is offering 15% off when you use the code NLU15 at checkout. Go to Whoop. WHOOP.com, enter NLU15 at checkout to save 15%. Can't thank them enough for being a sponsor of the Trap Draw. And speaking of sponsor, the other sponsor I want to thank right now is Pinehurst, Pinehurst Golf Resorts, Pinehurst, North Carolina. For over 125 years, Pinehurst Resort has been the home of American golf, and yet there's never been a better time to be there. The championship legacy of Donald Ross's masterpiece, Pinehurst Number no. 2, endures as the U.S. Open's first anchor site with five U.S. Opens scheduled to return over the next two decades. Add Gil Hance's redesigned Pinehurst Number no. 4 or Number no. 6, home of this week's first U.S. Adaptive Open. Please uh, check out our Instagram. We're going to have a lot of coverage there. Our guy Cody is on site at the U.S. Adaptive Open. Those are just three of nine championship golf courses to experience at Pinehurst. After testing your game there, grab a few wedges and enjoy a loop on the Cradle, our 789-yard short course that's been hailed as the most fun 10 acres in golf. Off the course, indulge in an array of craft beers brewed on-site at Pinehurst Brewing Company or relax with your buddies in the stylish North and South Bar. Pinehurst continues to evolve making it much more than a bucket list destination, but a place to return to again and again. So go to pinehurst.com now to plan your visit. Thank them as well for sponsoring the Trap Draw. Uh, and now to our guest today. My guest is a fun one. It's somebody that I've wanted to talk to for quite a while. It is Chris Welsh. Chris is a former major league pitcher. He's a current analyst for my beloved Cincinnati Reds. Um, he's been in that role since 1993. He does most of his work on the television side, but also from time to time will call games on the radio. He owns and operates Baseball Rules Academy, a fun interactive website that teaches the rules of the game for any of you uh, aspiring umpires, baseball coaches, or players. It's a great resource for that. You can find him on Twitter, at ThinkPitch. 
Chris is an avid golfer. I want to ask him about golfing on the road and you know some of his favorite cities. So without further ado, uh, as baseball is in the all-star break, we're kind of at the uh, you know the halfway point of the season. I thought it was a perfect time to, to catch up with Chris. So here's my conversation with Chris Welsh. Chris, I know you're in uh, you're in New York right now, man. What a first, uh, uh, an exciting first game for the Reds. They go for the series win tonight. How how are you enjoying the Big Apple? Well, I always enjoy coming here, Randy. It's a great place for me in small group, in small amounts. You know, uh, three days is what we've got here. We got three games, uh, which for me is perfect time in New York. I wouldn't want to live here, but I do really enjoy coming here. We'll be back later in the year when we come back to play the Mets in August, but. Uh, this is a vibrant city. And, of course, so the Reds don't get to play the New York Yankees at the big stadium very often. So it's a pleasure to go to Yankee Stadium uh, and sit in there, and it's, it's big league. There's no question about it. I mean, even though it's the new stadium and not the old Yankee Stadium, the one that I played in, uh, you can still, you know, really understand the passion for Yankee fans and the history, you know, Babe Ruth and Gehrig and all those guys. Uh, it, it's really quite special. Well, I want to I want to ask you about the golf, but maybe we'll put that aside for now. Um, and I also couldn't agree more on I, I love visiting New York. And then after a few days, I'm like, I, I got to get out of here. It starts to feel a little claustrophobic <laughs> for me. Um, well, let me ask you this. You are working this series in New York on the radio side. Uh, you, you do both. And I'm curious what the what the big differences are between working on the on television and working on radio and, and how you view those two mediums. Well, first, let me tell you how I got here, uh, which was I had been doing TV for a long time. Like, you know, the majority of the games I've done on the air have been TV, like 95% of them. And along the way, I'd fill in on radio. And so I'm like a, an older baseball player that was once a starter. Now I got, I've gotten old and I've been now a utility infielder. So I do a few games on TV, a few pre and post game shows, and I do a few on radio about Oh, about 30 or so on radio. So uh, <clears throat> I don't hold myself out to be a professional play-by-play announcer because it's it's something that sounds really easy. You know, somebody sits at a bar or having a cocktail, and says, oh, I can do that, you know, and he talks into his, his beer. Um, it's a little different story when, you're, when you have a microphone in front of you and when you stop talking, the description of the game stops and you maybe – don't know how to pronounce a player's name or you misread something off of a read, uh, all those things that can go wrong. But uh, in, in radio, overall, you're painting a picture and you're trying to explain a little bit more about the game to the audience who is only listening rather than using the TV where you don't have to duplicate things. You let the TV do the talking and you fill in the blanks. In radio, you've got to do the talking and fill in the blanks. At this point in your career, when you go over to the the radio side of a broadcast, I, I don't know if like you get any butterflies or nerves or or how, how do you approach a, a series like this where it's you know you got to flex some some different skills. I I um I try to prepare as much as I can so that I always have something there in the um, midst of some dead air. You know, you're really not sure what to say. You just can't start reading stats off the scorecard. So, but I try to get stories about everybody uh, that's in the ball game, at least on the, the rosters on each team, uh, maybe something on the coaches, maybe something uh, that has to do with an experience that I may have had in New York or playing at Yankee Stadium, something like that. So, you know, when you 
are under pressure, sometimes you forget all the stories that you know in your head, right? Um, it's like somebody walks up to you and says, tell me a joke. Yeah. Well, you, you probably have 2,000 jokes in your head, but you can't even think of one. So it's the same way. So I keep a lot of notes. I, I, I take those with me. I do a lot of uh, preparation ahead of time. And uh, I try to be as natural as I can. And I tell you, the best bit of advice I ever got about radio announcing um, came from Vin Scully. Of course, the icon of all announcers and uh, Los Angeles Dodgers forever and ever. And he told me, make believe that you're talking to one person uh, across a coffee table and describe the game to that one person. Don't think that some people will be, you know, riding them uh, on farm machinery. Other people will be in a factory. Some people will be driving down the road. Some are doing the dishes at home. Don't think about all that stuff and try to please everybody. Just talk to that one person. And if you do that, it will be a lot easier. And I, that's the one of the tricks that I use. I mean, Vin Scully, just an absolute legend. Uh, of course, the, with how much time you've been involved in the Reds, Marty Brenneman's a, another iconic broadcaster. What are some of those other people or little bits of advice uh, off the top of your head um, that, that come to mind that's really helped shape your career? Well, you know, uh, when it comes to play-by-play, -play, um, one of the tricks that play-by-play -play announcers use is that when they don't have anything else to say, they'll recap how the team scored their runs. So if you're in a sixth inning and it's getting kind of a slow game and they're in for another pitching change and, you know, while you look up something about the pitcher that's coming in, you can say, well, the Reds scored three runs in the third when they went back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back home runs and then they hit into a double play to end the inning, but they did get three and this is the way the Yankees scored in the fourth. Uh, so that kind of kills some time <clears throat> if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. But as far as tips that I received along the way that really helped me, um, one that I, I you know, I, I worked with George Grand for 17 years. Now, George was the first ever Sports Center host on ESPN, the number one guy back in the 1970s. And one of the things that I learned from George is to get down there on the field and talk to all the players especially the young players. Learn a little bit about them ahead of time. Look at their bios. Go down there prepared. If the guy went to, um, you know, Notre Dame, talk to him about the coach at Notre Dame. Uh, if you have something in common, maybe maybe two or three levels, you know, removed, bring that up to him and talk to him. <clears throat> so he did that, and he became friendly with a lot of players that down the road would become superstars, and then they wouldn't want to talk as much. And the example that I always use is, um, when Barry Bonds came to town in the heyday of his hitting home runs and in the heyday of being under scrutiny for taking steroids, uh, he wasn't talking to any press whatsoever. But when he came to Cincinnati, he sat down with George Grant for 20 minutes, did a one-on-one -on -one interview. George asked him anything he wanted. And the reason why is because he had known Barry Bonds ever since he played college at Arizona State. So <clears throat> it kind of set the groundwork for that. And I learned that as a, uh, as a broadcaster to to try to get in on the ground floor with these players because they'll remember you. I, and I'm so glad you mentioned George. He, he truly seems like the nicest, one of the nicest people on the planet. I, I mean, I can hear his idioms, you know, hi, hello, and welcome. Uh, the, the, the <clears throat> smiling side of the scoreboard, just, just so many fun memories. And he just relentlessly positive are, are, are my lasting memories of George as well. Thanks for uh, saying that because you're right. Because any, if anybody ever had told me that they did not like George Grant and <laughs> to this day, no one has ever said that 
I would have to question that person <laughs> because everybody likes George Graham. He's kind of like, uh, oh, I don't know. He, he's kind of like Sean Casey. Um, those two guys probably separate themselves in my life as two of the most upbeat, positive people who you just can't help but like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let me, let me give you an opportunity to brag on one of your other colleagues, if you don't mind. Uh, Tommy Thrall, who has taken over for the aforementioned Marty Brenneman. I, I, I think it's no matter what walk of life, it's one of the more <clears throat> difficult things to come in after a, a, a real legend and, and especially a living legend like Marty is for, you know, the Cincinnati market and, and Cincinnati Reds on baseball or uh, Cincinnati Reds on radio. Excuse me. I, I personally have been so impressed with Tommy. I, I feel like the broadcasts have not skipped a beat at all. Um, how, how, from your perspective as somebody that, you know, has, has been in the business since 1993, how, how impressed are you with Tommy and how difficult of a situation was that for him to, to step in? Well, first, let me say one thing about Marty, because Marty is an icon in his own right. I mean, he was a guy that... Uh, uh, everybody in Cincinnati just adored. Uh, he was always had a reputation of quote unquote, telling it like it is, yes. uh, which I used to kid him about say, Marty, you're not telling it like it is. You're telling it like Marty sees it. Yeah. Uh, and there was a big difference there. But yeah. the one thing that Marty did was he was a highly entertaining guy. I mean, he was so funny and off the air. He was so profane. I mean, it was a sailor's language, dugout language all the time. And one of the reasons why I think that we've got a good broadcast crew in Cincinnati is because we're, we hit the air upbeat. We would sit and have a 45-minute dinner every night, <clears throat> all the broadcasters with Marty and the radio guys and the TV guys and some of the tech guys and so on. And he would basically hold court. And there was nothing that was sacred. There was nothing he wouldn't say. If you did something that was embarrassing, he'd find out about it. He'd bring it up in front of everybody. And he'd have everybody roaring. So when we finally <laughs> broke up, you know, to go into our booths to do our respective, you know, work on the air, um, we were smiling and laughing when we hit the air. And I think that's a big, uh, big plus right there. I, I love Marty Brenneman. He's really one of the best broadcasters I've ever been with. And I had a chance to broadcast with him quite a bit early in my career when he came over and did some TV. Uh, so when you have a big guy like that, a big space taken, and then he leaves, you know, it's hard to fill that vacuum. But Tommy Thrall came in a year before he actually went on the air. And he kind of followed Marty around. He, and Marty introduced him to people around the league. And he let him do some post-game, you know, out-of-town scores and things like that. But along the way, Tommy Thrall had been working for probably 20 years as a minor league announcer. So he's honed his craft. Uh, he's got a very good voice. He's, he's easy on the ears voice-wise. And I think that's a big thing. And he doesn't try to be Marty Brenneman. So all of those things combined are the reasons why he's been successful so far. Have you, the, the, the chemistry, one, one of the things I notice, and with you particularly, Chris, it seems like you get along with everybody. That's uh, either speaks to you as a person or you do a really good job of faking it. But what is it like trying to forge that on-air chemistry, especially with, with new broadcast partners? Because you're working with somebody new on the television side as mm -hmm. well, John Sadek. Who, yeah, um, you know, everybody's different. I probably have worked with 15 to 20 different play-by-play -play broadcasters along the way. Did a lot of Fox games along the way. They bring in national announcers, uh, brought in some fill-ins, the guys that did or did not know baseball. I think the biggest thing is to make it clear in the very beginning, maybe not necessarily have to talk to them about it, but make it clear that th this is fun. We're going to have fun today. This isn't brain surgery or we wouldn't be here. 
Okay. We're, and it's, and it's not that serious because it's a game. Uh, some people love the game. They love their team so much, you know, you have to respect that, but let's have fun. And, um, I think if you go into it with that attitude, you're going to get get along with a lot of people. Now, I do know some broadcast crews out there that the, the guy, two guys can't get along at all. I mean, they hate each other off the air. I don't know how they do it by getting on the air and spending four hours with each other every night. Uh, I'm surprised that there are more fist fights, but I've never had that problem. It's uh, It's been really good. You just kind of adjust to their styles. Some Some guys like to talk more than others. I kind of let them do their thing. And, and uh, I've always thought that as the, the color analyst, um, they're, they're on the, I'm there to give you the inside scoop of the, of the, on the game itself and maybe something that I know about a player or a strategy or a manager and so on. I'm not trying to beat him to the punch and using all the notes that have come out in the media notes. I mean, I let that play-by-play guy do that, and I fill in the other stuff. I, I want to go back to something you said about being able to have fun and, and enjoy it. The, the Reds, I think, as everybody knows, got off to uh, just a historically awful start this year and, you know, kind of paints the rest of the season. They've been playing good baseball since, you know, I think they started three and 23 or whatever it was. Um, but does it ever become a slog? Is it tough to broadcast? I mean, I imagine it's really hard to bra- broadcast bad baseball. Do you, do you have to like fight? getting too negative or, or how, how do you deal with, you know, having to watch bad baseball um, a lot? Well, it's more fun than working. I get to yeah. tell you that. And it's definitely more fun when they win. But if you have a start like the Reds had, they were three and 22. I mean, they were miserable. Uh, they lost every different way you can possibly lose. But the way I look at it is that every game has its own storyline. That's the one beautiful thing about live sports is that you really don't know what's going to happen. You may think you're going to know. Uh, and if you do, then you ought to go ahead and place a bet. But <laughs> in baseball, it's impossible to know. So, and probably in golf too, but it, it is uh, one of those things where you, you just have to uh, recognize that people tune in to be entertained. People don't want to hear you complaining. Everybody who is listening and watching your game has issues. You know, their mom might be sick. Their kid may be failing in school. They got an uncle in jail. You know, whatever the problem is, uh, everybody's got issues. And the last thing they want to do is turn on the TV or the radio and hear your issues and your problem with the team and why it's negative and why you can't have fun in the booth. So, you know, we, we try to let them forget about it in a little, little while that the team is 18 games under 500 and are out of it by, you know, June the 1st. Um, that doesn't affect the broadcast for tonight. You know, for instance, for tonight, the Reds are in a, in a situation here in New York where they've got a chance to take this two out of three against the New York Yankees. And uh, for me, that's exciting, and it's worth talking about. Uh, Luis Castillo pitches tonight, the, the day we're recording this. Um, could be every start he makes for the Reds. Could be his last start for the Reds. Uh, a good segue to maybe ask you some specific baseball questions. What, what pitchers, you being a former pitcher, what, what pitchers do you most enjoy watching? Well, Castillo is one of them. Uh, I, I really like the guys that uh, are a combination of power and finesse. Um, so, I, of course, I love the, the great pitchers out there. Uh, I really enjoyed watching Garrett Cole the other night with the Yankees. Uh, he's gotten better over the years. I've seen him pitch against the Reds, I think, not 14 times. Uh, he's only His team has only won one, by the way. Um, but, uh, and I like uh, guys like Kyle Hendricks and Greg Maddox and Pedro Martinez. I like those pitchers that change speed. And they use, I think, a more of an artistic brush 
when they pitch rather than the power. Um, there's a lot of guys that can go power and they do that. And I respect that, but I like those pitchers that are able to kind of get you out with cunning and guile rather than power. Can you learn the artistic aspect of pitching? I, I, I think of a guy, um, and maybe it's just a matter of development, uh, of course, but a, a guy like Hunter Green on the Reds, who is blessed with one of the best arms in the game. H- how difficult is it to transition from raw power pitcher to, to finding more of that finesse and, and being able to, to get hitters out with, with a little bit of guile? Does that question make sense? Is that something that can be taught, or is that just natural uh, ability? It's both. I think, you know, the bottom line there is that he better learn how to pitch and be, or else, you know, he's not going to last long in the major leagues, no matter how hard you throw. I mean, the hitters nowadays are so good that, I mean, you could send it up there like a bullet and they would figure out eventually how to hit it. If it's straight and if it's flat. So um, in, in order to get a hitter out, I think you go to his weaknesses and uh, what are his weaknesses? Does he have good plate coverage? Is he a high ball hitter, a low ball hitter? You know, you have to pitch the scouting report, uh, but you also have to recognize your strengths as well. I think moving the ball around the strike zone and changing speeds is the way that you last a long time in the major leagues. Now, if you're blessed with a great arm like Hunter Green, uh, that even adds, you know, that gives you a higher ceiling. Uh, but Green is going to have to figure out, you know, how to change speeds a little bit more. Um, there was an old saying in baseball that there's three things that you should know about pitching. One is that you throw first pitch strikes. The other is that you get a decision on a two, two count. And the third is that you have two speeds on your breaking ball, which means back in the old days, you know, they would say, you know, a hard curve and a slow curve. Nowadays it's a curve and a slider. And I think that that, uh, would be good for, for green, uh, to learn. Uh, he had a chance the other night to watch Garrett Cole pitch. Cole had a pitch that he would throw 86 miles an hour, and then he threw 100. Greens seem to be all kind of bunched up in a, in a really fast area of speed, and it doesn't make uh, as big a uh, difficulty for the hitter to, to negotiate when all those pitches are coming in or about the same speed. Yeah. Um, I, and generally, with the game of baseball, it's, it's evolving very quickly. Obviously, we've had a – influx of statistical information that has led to shifts and the way batters are pitched and, and all of that stuff. What it, it, broadly speaking, the game of baseball, do you like where it is? Uh, and, and I'm more, I'm most curious about your thoughts, um, potentially about imp- implementing rules, banning the shift. Uh, do you think the DH coming to the national league has been a good thing? What if, if Chris Welsh was could be commissioner of baseball for a day? What what would be top priorities for you? Well, I don't mind the. I was against the the uh, the, the, the DH in both leagues. I thought that was one cool thing that kind of separated the two leagues. But I get it now. I, I understand. There's no big thrill to watch pitchers hitting, especially nowadays when so few of them ever took pride in trying to be able to hit the ball. So um, it, it's, it's a more interesting game when you have nine batters. There's no question about that. I would leave that in place. I would um, not do anything with the shift, to be honest with you. I, I think when you start telling the, the defenses where to play, uh, then it becomes a problem. Now, in other sports, they've done that. Um, you know, in, in the NBA, you can't play a, a zone. And, and, you know, there's all sorts of examples that you can show that. But I'm enough of a baseball, classic baseball fan that I like to see it the game resemble what is being played on the schoolyards and in the amateur baseball fields 
as much as possible at the big league level. So those two games should look similar, not dissimilar. So every time Major League Baseball makes an, an adjustment where they bring in a robotic umpire or they bring in replay review or they bring in some kind of technical issue like they've got Pitchcom now where you can the catcher calls the pitches with a little remote control which activates an earpiece in the pitcher's ear and he says, okay, throw me a fastball instead of you know dropping your fingers down and giving signs. All those things are making the game of baseball at the big league level look less like the game that's being played by 12 and 15-year-olds. And I think that's a bad thing. I think the one reason why baseball over the years and decades has been America's game, quote-unquote, is because so many Americans have played that game growing up. And um, if they're playing a game that doesn't look like the one they're seeing on TV, it's just not the same thing. So I would implement rules that would do that. Um, and But the problem is that you know, pitchers have gotten so big and strong right now, and there's so many strikeouts that the balls are not in play enough. So I would be tempted to believe it or not, Randy, I, I would be very tempted to move the mound back. And that way it would force more balls in play. I want to see great defensive plays. I want to see speed. I want to see stolen bases and triples. Uh, it's fun to see home runs, okay? But it's also kind of anticlimactic, too where a guy strikes out four times and he hits a home run, he's a hero. Um, I want to see guys put the ball in play and action. I want to see action. Amen to that. To totally with you. Um, I, I feel the same way. And, you know, there's a little crossover to golf too. I, I think in the way uh, certainly the men's professional game is, is going where a lot of the weeks it's simply hit it as far as you can and, and try to hit a wedge as close to the pin as possible. I, I think the analog with baseball is – the more that ball, whether the golf ball or the baseball is, is in play is rolling on the ground that there's, you know, you don't quite know what's going to happen. That's, that's when the sports get really exciting. So could, could not agree with you more. Hey everybody, Randy here. Sorry to interrupt, but one more sponsor to thank that is our good friends at DraftKings Sportsbook. Right now, DraftKings Sportsbook is giving all new customers a risk-free bet up to $1,000 if your first bet loses, you can place this on the Evian women's major, the 3M, the baseball games after the all-star break. It does not matter. Head over to DraftKings Sportsbook app right now and check out all they have to offer, including same-game parlays, player props, live betting, and so much more. DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook app, is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. And if Sportsbook is not yet available in your state, don't forget about the DraftKings Fantasy app. They are offering millions of dollars in total prizes every week. So download and sign up for DraftKings Sportsbook to get in on all the exciting action and for a shot at winning cash. New customers will receive a free bet up to $1,000 in free bets if their first bet loses Sign up using promo code NLU to get this offer and start seeing all the great ways DraftKings brings you closer to your favorite sports. Thank them for sponsoring the Trap Draw. And now back to my conversation. Um, I, I want to ask you, so one of my, really the, the guy I've loved to watch through the years, I want to ask you about Joey Votto, what he's like. Are, are you very close to him? Does, you know, off the clock, does he spend much time with, with the broadcasting crew? I know he's, he's close with Jim Day, one of your colleagues on the TV side. Uh, what, what's Joey Votto like? Joey Votto is a perfectionist. 
And uh, he doesn't have a really close relationship with a lot of the broadcasters. And I'm not really sure whether it's really all that close with Jim Day. Now, he does interviews with Jim, and uh, Jim has been kind of the designated Joey Votto interviewer, uh, which along the years is fine. I've got a nice relationship with Joey. We talk occasionally. Uh, he's very um, close to the best. Uh, when I ask baseball questions of players, it's about the game itself. It's about their strategy, what their training methods are, what are you trying to do here, and so on. And Joe is very reluctant to, to say those things because he's afraid that someone's going to see the interview and they're going to realize what he's trying to do, and then the pitcher is going to make an adjustment. So he's kind of keeping like official CIA secrets. A lot of players nowadays do that. Um because they think that there are secrets actually out there, which there are not. But uh, anyway, so, uh, but he's, a, he's an upstanding guy. I'll tell you what, what my feeling about Joey is that I don't think I've ever seen a player dedicate his life to the game of baseball as deeply as Joey Votto has while he's been a major league baseball player. This guy basically has foregone his entire social life. He doesn't go out. Uh, he doesn't hang out. Um, he, he, he thinks about baseball all the time. I mean, he's watching video, he's studying, he's, uh, he's got one thing in mind all the time, and that's to be the best baseball player out there. And uh, for that, I respect him a lot. He is the, easily the most prepared player I've ever seen. And, uh, but at, at the same time, now that Joey's 38 years old, you know, there's a reason that they have a Champions Tour on the PGA Golf, right? right. Because the guys that are 50 and over can't compete with the young guys anymore. Well, Father Time is undefeated. And I think that goes for any sport and any, any types of business too. Will he end up in Cooperstown in your opinion? I don't know. You know, I don't get a Cooper. I don't get a vote. Uh, the, the writers, the baseball writers are the ones that vote. And I think there are a number of players that, that des- are, are in the baseball hall of fame that deserve to be in. Uh, I, I think there are a number that aren't in that deserve to be in. I think the one thing about the baseball hall of fame is that they're, they're just too exclusive. I think they should, they should allow way more players in there. And I think it would be better for the game if they did that, because remember uh, that the full name of, of Cooperstown Hall of Fame is the Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. So, you know, if you had an impact on the game, you ought to be in there. So if you use that as a definition, I think Joey Bottle will be in the Hall of Fame. Yes. Um, when I say the date, June 1st, 1986, does anything come to mind for you? Well, I, in 1986 in June, I was pitching for the Reds, um, but I don't know what happened that day. <laughs> it's one of my favorite stories. I hope I, ha- I think I think this date is right. Uh, you attempted 17 pickoffs of, of Vince Coleman <laughs> at first base on that date, but before he eventually stole second on you. Do, you. do you remember that? Oh, I do now that you bring it up. Actually, <laughs> that was my first game I pitched that year for the Reds. I was down in spring training with the Reds as a non-roster player. And I pitched better than anybody in spring training, and I had made the team. And they had my luggage and me on the bus for going to Cincinnati for opening day. And they they stopped the bus and said, wait a minute, Mario Soto is going to be okay for opening day pitcher. We don't need Welsh. Leave him back in AAA. So I went out to AAA in Denver, where the Reds had a AAA franchise named the Denver uh, Zephyrs. And so anyway, fast forward that. I spent a few weeks down in the minor leagues, come up in in the very end of May, and I pitch in June. And – I pitched against the, the Cardinals that day at home in Cincinnati, had my family and friends there. And I knew all the Cardinal players because they had, I pitched against them in the minor leagues a lot. So Vince Coleman, who was the fastest player in the league, 
I walk him to start the game, and I know he's going to steal. So I started throwing over. And a left-handed pitcher, of course, looks right into the eyes of the runner. And every time I looked over there, I'm thinking I got his poker face figured out, and uh, he's going, so I throw over. Well, in the one at bat to Willie McGee, who was a former roommate of mine when we were both at the Yankee organization, I threw over 17. Actually, it was more like 21 times, I think, because they went back and recounted it. Uh, ESPN and then Sports Hill did a big article about it. Uh, but I think to this day that record will probably stand for a long time because they were booing the heck out of me in Cincinnati. And that was my home team. Even my parents and my friends were booing. It's, the only uh, people that liked that, me throwing over 17 times, was the concessionaires. They sold more beer during that at-bat than they ever did any other at-bat. It's one of my favorite stories. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, you, you've alluded to it many times on broadcast through the years. I just... I, I'm trying to think what would happen in today's age with social media and, and, you know, sports center being what it is. I mean, I, I it would be, it would be a lead story, a, a pitcher thrown over 17 times in a row. Um, you know, incredible. The, the worst part, the worst part of that, Randy, is that on the 18th, he stole second base. Right. <laughs> and, and, but I did pick him off later in the game and I ended up losing that game two to one. I pitched eight innings and gave up uh, a couple of runs and, and uh, unfortunately, didn't get the win that day. But uh, yeah, that was uh, when I tell people that story who have not heard before, they they think that I am absolutely lying. And of course, I can prove it. So thanks for bringing that one up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. Well, the, the other specific thing I wanted to ask you about, and I, I'm very fuzzy on the, on the exact details here, but it, I believe when Johnny Cueto, who, again, is uh, one of my favorite guys that's come through the, the Reds organization. Did you make a trip to the Dominican Republic to visit with Johnny at some point? I did. We were down there actually on a golf trip. We went down to play uh, uh, the Pete Dye courses, uh, Teeth of the Dog and uh, Casa de Campo. And uh, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to write the whole trip off, right? So I wanted yeah. to have some kind of a baseball thing. So I contacted Johnny and I said, I want to come over and do some interviews, follow you around in the wintertime. So I hired a stringer, which is a on-site videographer that had his own equipment and so on. He followed me around for a couple of days. And we went over to uh, uh, Johnny Cueto's uh, neighborhood and went to his house and had lunch with his mom. And, and uh, it, it was a great time. Uh, as it turned out, his mom had a big birthday that week. So he had a big birthday party he invited me to. And oh, my gosh. I mean, it was... Uh, it was huge. I mean, it was unlike any birthday party that I ever been to, but it was, uh, it was ideal. Got to know Johnny very well. We got a little bit close when, uh, when he was with the Reds, of course he's moved on to the giants and now the white Sox ever since. But, uh, the guy is amazing. Uh, he really is amazing. He came from nothing had absolutely a terrible upbringing, lived on a dirt floor and, uh, he made himself uh, one of the best pitchers in the game. Did you get on a horse with him? I, I know he's a big fan of horses. Yeah, he, he had this big white uh, horse. I did not get on that horse. No, okay. at that time, he didn't have the ranch. He was he had a house in kind of a residential neighborhood. And uh, he's, he's since bought a big ranch. He's got horses and all sorts of stuff. And uh, But he's, uh, he's living large. There's no question about it. Um, last kind of baseball and, and broadcasting question before I want to ask you a few golf questions here. Um, at what point did, did the idea of broadcasting enter as a, as a possibility, something you wanted to do? Had that been something that was percolating for a while? Yeah, you know, I'd always thought that I'd like to be a broadcaster, but I didn't know how to get into it or anything else. And then what really happened is that one day 
Uh, I went to University of South Florida in Tampa, and I was living down in the Bradenton area uh, after my post-playing days. And I was down there. I started a, a business that was completely unrelated to baseball. It was a nice business, but it was boring, and I had to put a tie on, and I really didn't like it. So uh, I got a call one day from the, the then coach of the University of South Florida baseball team and said, hey, you know, Eddie Cartieri was his name. And he said that uh, there was a TV entity named Sports Channel Florida that was going to, to televise 15 University of South Florida baseball games. Are you And they're looking for an announcer. Are you interested in doing it? Because their idea was that they would hire a professional play-by-play announcer and then their color analyst for whatever sport they were doing would be somebody that had an affiliation with the school, but also knew about the sport. So I was a natural for that. And uh, I said, sure, I'll do it. So I did that for six or seven years so that I, I became somewhat proficient. I mean, you're only doing 15 games a year and there's college baseball and really not a big audience. But when it did come time for me to submit a tape uh, of me doing games on the air, I had something to send up to Cincinnati. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have got the Reds job. So that was really important for me to do that. And that's how I got the start. I told you this from the stop from the top, but really, really enjoy your work and am and thankful that you're a part of the Reds organization. And you know, you've been a constant in my life through the summers watching Reds baseball. So uh thank you for that. On the golf side, I'm curious how your game is. I, I know you're an avid golfer, I know you're a very good golfer. Uh, what's the handicap right now? How how's the state of the game? Well, I play left-handed and I, my handicap is trending up. Unfortunately, now that I'm 67, I've come to the realization that I just can't play back there like I used to, because it's, it's no fun me hitting four iron in and some of the young guys I play with, you know, hitting nine irons and eight irons in. So um, that's one of the big changes. My handicap has been as low as a index of one and it's probably up around four right now. Uh, We all have issues and, uh, well, I found as you get older, believe it or not, Randy, it's more of a concentration issue. Uh, I get 15 or 16 holes in and I start thinking, man, well, really, what should I be preparing for? Do I have to buy dinner tonight? Do I have to uh, go to the store on the way home? You know, are, are there any uh, phone calls that I forgot to make? All that kind of stuff begins to kind of seep into your brain. And, uh, uh, but I still enjoy it a lot. And the one really great thing about being a, a major league broadcaster is that over the years, I've had a chance to play almost every great course in every city where there's a big league team. So, you know, last time I looked, unfortunately, there's not a, um, a big league team in Augusta, Georgia. So I haven't been on, on Augusta, but uh, I've played a lot of other golf courses and, and throughout the years, you know, for instance, uh, Ray Knight used to be the manager of the Reds and he was married to Nancy Lopez. So Nancy would call ahead and get us on all sorts of courses. And then Ken Griffey Jr. was a member of the Reds and he would call Nike and Nike would get us on. And so we always had one contact or another or another. And especially when Marty Brenneman was with the uh, broadcast crew, he was an avid, he really wanted to play every good course there was. So we'd go out of our way ahead of time to plan and make sure that we could play on, on the premier course in every city. You make friends with the pro and, um, and then it would be a yearly deal. So uh, we've got a pretty nice tour going on. Unfortunately, I did not get out here in New York. Um, but uh, maybe next time we come in, I'll get out there out on Long Island and play some of those great courses there. Oh, that's what I was going to say. I, I, you know, New York would be a very uh, appetizing road trip for you. And I, I guess I assumed maybe you automatically pack your clubs on every trip, but, but maybe not. How, how much, I mean, how much golf do you 
get to play on the road when you're out working? Well, I, I get to play a lot because uh, if I want to play, we can get out and play. Okay. The problem is with this particular broadcast crew right now, Jeff Brantley doesn't play anymore. Jim Day tells me he's got a bad back. Nobody else really <laughs> likes to play. Thrall doesn't play. So I don't want to go out and set up golf for just me, myself, you know. Uh, so uh, if I go to a city where the other broadcasters are golfers, I'll do that. For instance, we, when we go to St. Louis, uh, Dan McLaughlin, who's the play-by-play TV announcer for the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, is a member of Bell Reeve. So we played Bell Reeve. Uh, we had a chance to play Norwood Hills when we were in there earlier this year. That's where they have a Champions Tour event in September. Um, there are not, you know, so it's kind of funny because we go to those central cities, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh, you know, St. Louis, Chicago, three times a year. And I've got friends now that belong to, to all these great courses in each of those cities. So people ask me, Jay, you're a big league announcer. What's the best city to go to? And they're already thinking I'm going to say Miami, L.A., San Diego, San Francisco, New York. And I say, oh, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh. And they look at me like I'm crazy. I say, well, you know, Pittsburgh has Oakmont. And they've got uh, Fox Chapel and yeah. uh, Allegheny Country Club. And, of course, all the great courses that are up, up around Milwaukee and Wisconsin, uh, including some of the old ones like Blue Mound. Uh, so we, we get to play all those, and it's, it's really fun. And the best part of it for me is that – we're usually the dew sweepers. We're out there early, early in the morning, and we're done, uh, you know, by 1030 or 11 o'clock, try to get out of people's way. So it, it's a fun gig if we can get up and do it. Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. Uh, I, it's such a hard question, but do you have a favorite course? Is there one that kind of stands above for you? That's an impossible question, really. I, I know. There's so many different types of courses that you play. The, the one that I've been able to play the last few years, because I have a, an old teammate of mine, uh, when I was with the Yankees in AAA, who uh, is now retired and belongs just to the uh, Chicago Golf Club. That's, that's one of my favorite courses, no doubt. Uh, it's, a, it's a really old-fashioned golf and, and really nice. Uh, we, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can name you my favorite course in every state, uh, but, but in order to pick one, I'm thinking, boy, how do you compare, you know, the, the Pebble Beach courses to, you know, the Arizona desert courses I, to, I know. you know, what you're going to get down in Miami, you know, they're just all so different. So that's the one really lucky thing that I have going for me is I get a chance to play all different types. Maybe the, the better question would be the inverse then maybe take, taking away Augusta. What, what course have you not played yet? That's top of list for you. Uh, Pine Valley. Uh, that's one I've had a couple of opportunities, wasn't able to, to make those dates, but that's the one that I really would like to play. Uh, no doubt. Um, we did play a course up there and, and, and for the life of me, I can't remember. I don't want to say it was Tapatio Hills, but I'm not sure if that's the real name of it. It was actually on the, um, the Rockefeller residence, their estate up in upstate New York in Rye, New York. Uh, and I remember Ken Griffey senior, uh, asked one day who wants to play golf tomorrow, be down the lobby at six 30. And I said, where are we playing? He said, "Never mind." So we all hopped in a van. We drove down through the Bronx, uh, went right past the old Yankee stadium, went up in the Scarsdale area in Rye, New York. And next thing you know, we pull up to this gatehouse and the security guard checks us out and we get in and, and then, uh, we meet a guy up there and he, he goes over to this old beat up garage. Uh, and he pulls up by hand the overhead door, and there's a beat-up golf cart in there. This is when Joe Nuxall was announcing with the Reds, and Marty was there. We had about eight of us, and uh, he said, throw your clubs on there. So we had like seven or eight sets of clubs on one cart. Nuxall drove it around, 
And it was a David Rockefeller course. It was his own personal course on his residence, which was adorned throughout the course with um, incredible artwork and sculptures. And so you really had to be careful how you sprayed the ball because you didn't want to be responsible for, <laughs> you know, knocking the leaf off of a, off of a, a sculpture. But, uh, you know, those are the kind of experiences that we have that are really fun that, uh, uh, you know, I'll never forget. I, and I was just Googling it while you were describing it. It, it is, uh, I'm going to butcher it, maybe Pacantico Hills. Does yes, that sound yes. right with a P? Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Yeah. It, it's one of the, the uh, handful. Uh, anyway, of truly- we, you know, that was, we were way out of our league, obviously, yeah. when we were yeah, doing yeah. that. But uh, uh, it was one of those courses where there was 18 holes, 18 greens, but I think there's only about 12 or 13 tee boxes. So, that you know, you, you use different tee boxes around, excuse me, there are 14 greens, but multiple tee boxes. So you play the same hole twice. Gotcha. Gotcha. Did you grow up playing golf or, or was that something you got into as, as you got into baseball? You know, I, I loved golf and my dad was lucky enough to, to join a country club in Cincinnati when we moved there from Delaware in, in around 1960. And uh, I, I really liked playing golf and uh, we had a pro at that golf club and who was an ambidextrous golfer. And my grandfather happened to be a left-handed golfer. So he, he would send me his old clubs I got them. They fit me fine. And uh, I played a little bit. And I remember uh, Bob Toppy was his name. And he would play his irons right-handed and his woods left-handed. So he kind of took an interest in me and tried to get me engaged in golf. And he took me out a few times. And, you know, we get to be about the eighth or ninth hole. I'd, I'd grab my bag off the back of the golf cart. And I start running the parking lot. And he said, Chris, where are you going? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Poppy. I got a pitch tonight. And, and that was it, you know, so I, uh, looking back, I, I think that, you know, I, no one's going to say, oh, I could have made it on the PGA tour because that's, you know, the infinitesimal odds of making that. But, uh, you know, I, I love baseball and I love golf, but I love baseball more. Who are the best? I, I got to think you're one of the better playing broadcasters. Who, who do you look to that are like, oh man, he's got game. Yeah. John Smoltz kind of is, is in a league by himself as far as, active broadcasters. He does some national games. And of course he's played a few events on the, on the champions tour. Uh, he plays in a celebrity events out there in uh, Lake Tahoe and so on. Um, you know, I don't know how many other broadcasters nowadays, because th- there's been such a turnover Ed farmer when he was alive and, and was, was broadcasting for the Chicago White Sox was an excellent golfer. Um, Rick Roden was a, was a golfer who came out of the, he pitched for Pittsburgh and uh, one is one of the early guys that started that celebrity tour and so on. But uh, uh, I'll tell you, the, the guy that I think stands out now, and I'm not sure how much golf he gets, is Brian Anderson, uh, who does both NBA games and he does the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, he used to work for the Golf Channel. And by the way, he's got me on a lot of good golf courses, too. Yeah. But uh, B.A. is a really good golfer, too. I think we're probably about the same. And the other guy that I play with, um, you know, several times a week when I'm in Cincinnati in the summer and he's there, too, is Paul O'Neill. Uh, mm-hmm. O'Neill does work for the Yankees and the Yes Network. And he and I play straight up. And we're, you know, we trade the same $20 back and forth all summer long. Uh, I had the chance to play Aaron Hills with BA last, last September. Uh, oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Great guy. Good golfer. Another one that, that comes to mind for me is Dave Fleming. I know, uh, for the giants is, is, I, I think he's a very good golfer. 
Yeah, you know, I have not had a chance to get out and play with Dave. We just were in San Francisco, and I didn't take my clubs out there on that trip. But, uh, yes, uh, yeah, uh, Fleming is a good golfer. And better than that, he, he's got good connections around the golf world. Yes, and this, you know, the, the fraternity of broadcasters, you know, we share a lot of inside information about our teams so that we have inside scoop. For instance, I have inside scoop about the Yankees and Paul O'Neill has inside scoop about the Reds because we talk before the series. But we also share, who do you know in Miami? Who do you know in Atlanta? <laughs> have you ever played Peachtree Country Club? We want to get on that. How do we, you know, who should we call? So yeah. there is like an, an undervalue of, uh, of contacts in there. And, you know, we have, a, we have a big guide as to exactly uh, who we can call, how we can get on and whether it's doable or not. Oh, and I might be making this up. Do you and Steve Flesh ever team up? Uh, are, are you guys golf partners back in Cincinnati? Because I know he plays out of, uh, well, he used to play out of Triple Crown. I don't know if if, if he's, that's still his home course or not. Yeah, I, I actually, I, uh, I played out of Triple Crown for a while too, and that's where I met Steve originally. And uh, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, it's significant because he's left-handed. Right. So for a while there, uh, his garage was my sporting goods store. Uh, because he didn't have anybody else to give those clubs to. And so I've got a lot of clubs, you know, that should have, that has, you know, he's a tinkerer. So he's got a bunch of these lead tape on every one of his clubs and everything is like specially changed and so on. But uh, yeah, he's been very generous to me along the years and we play a lot. In fact, we try to get together uh, a few times a summer when he's not playing, when he's got open dates on the champions tour. And we always try to put together a left-handed foursome. And that would include, you know, flesh, myself, uh, Paul O'Neill. We've got a couple other lefty buddies that, that fall in there too. So uh, people look at that and say, oh my gosh, you got four left-handers in one group? <laughs> you guys are crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All good players too. Uh, yeah. right. I, uh, last question, baseball-wise, I, I, it's, I, it's, a, it's a phrase, and I, I love when you drop little sayings or, or nicknames. What, the, the saying 3-0 Leo is one that I do not know what it means. And I was like, I'm going to have the opportunity to talk to Chris. I just have to ask him. Can you explain what, what 3-0 Leo is? Well, you know, a 3-0 Leo re refers to a baseball count in baseball when a pitcher goes three balls and no strikes. So one more ball, you get ball four, right? And you go to your base. So normally what I have found over the years is that umpires are subconsciously against changing the outcome of the game. So anytime they can make a call on a marginal pitch that doesn't change anything, they'll do it. So a 3-0 pitch, most of the time, hitters never swing on a 3-0 pitch. They're taking that pitch. So a lot of times you'll see a pitch that's a foot outside called a strike because the umpire doesn't want to be responsible for ball four. He wants the bat to keep going and then the batter and pitcher to determine what's going to happen. So that's subconscious at work. I got that saying from a junior college coach that used to coach against us when I was down at University of South Florida. And uh, he would say, you know, umpire would call a really bad pitch for a strike on a 3-0 count. He just said, there we go again, 3-0 Leo. And I don't even know if that umpire's name was Leo or not, but uh, I, I picked that up along the way. And, of course, that guy was the same. His name was Lou Garcia. Uh, and I loved him to death. He's no longer with us. But – he used to also, he was the same guy that said he would yell at the umpire and tell him to get the beer caps out of his eyes. So uh, there were many sayings that I got from Lou Garcia. <laughs> and my other favorite one, I know it's a big 12 to six curveball, but 
where Lord Charles, is there a story behind how it how it's come to be called a, a Lord Charles? Boy, you know, I don't know. I just picked that one up along the way. Uh, Uncle Charlie is is really the the name of a curveball. So Adam Wainwright, who pitches for the uh, St. Louis Cardinals, I think he uses that in his either his uh, Twitter account or his email. He calls Uncle Charlie. You know, so you know, here comes fastball, fastball, Uncle Charlie, and, uh, and then if you have a really good one, it's a Lord Charles. That's the way we go with that. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> well, uh, Chris, thank. This was such a, a joy for me to get to talk to you. Uh, enjoy the last game in the Bronx tonight. I hope the Reds can get a series victory. Um, we will be in Cincinnati for the LPGA event in September. So if, if, if I forget if the Reds are in town or not, but if you're around Kenwood in September, hopefully we can say hi. Um, we'll have a big group of us out there, but, uh, thank you for your time. And, and, uh, thank you for all your great work on the Reds broadcast as well. Well, you know, that's one of the first things I looked at last year, Randy was the schedule that came out and I'm a member of Kenwood. So when, um, we figured out that they were going to get an LPGA event. I looked at the, at the schedule and I think the Reds are out of town, but if you come in a few days early, Hey, bring your sticks, we can play around a little bit. And, uh, you just make me, you make sure that you give me a call and, uh, and bring some of that, uh, that Denver money with you. Will you? <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Uh, that, that sounds like <laughs> a blast. Uh, well, Chris, I'll let you go. Thank you again. I, this, this was a real pleasure. My pleasure as much, Randy. Take care, buddy. Thank you. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who